Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, we'll get a bit of an update from you, what's happening in mortgage land, but I want to go to John first. It's December right now as people are hearing this, and I'll just date stamp it that we are recording this on the 29th of November, just in case we say something and then tomorrow it changes. So John, what's the year been like for you in property land, for your clients, for listeners of the podcast? What are you seeing out there? And should we have hope? Should we have some fear? Yeah, what a year it has been. I think the the last couple of months for us in terms of finding property, there's plenty of buyers wanting to buy property, but it has been a little bit challenging from the point of view of having very low stock. And it's a bit of an interesting market. And Rach, you're probably seeing this in in mortgage land. The, The vacancy rates are extremely low. There's low stock. And there's not a heap of buyers out there. So it's a, it's a weird old market that says, well, we're not going to take a discount. There's not blood on the streets and, and we haven't got the choice of, of many properties to choose from. I, I think in general, it's been a, there's been some retraction in a lot of markets around the country. So uh, like there's so many markets to mention, but like maybe Newcastle's retracted. We've had like Bendigo and Ballarat's retracted. There's been a little bit of retraction in Melbourne and Sydney, um, but then on the on the flip side, you've got place like cities like Adelaide and Perth that are absolutely going bananas at the moment. They're they're walking off the streets in a matter of days. Like we had a client that we're looking for at the uh, moment, who's got a budget of around two and a half mil, and these properties are selling in like five days um, at that price in Perth, which is just crazy. Whereas three years ago, Perth was dead as a doormat. So why is Perth hot all of a sudden? Is it the whole remote working, lifestyle change, you know, other, you know, I would imagine that property prices are cheaper in Perth than in Sydney. I mean, you'd carve out the two and a half million dollar example for a lot of us, but, you know, for the garden variety family homes, Perth is, I would think, relatively more affordable. Yeah, well- there's high income earners, generally speaking, over there. So that's always going to be in their favour. But if you look back in the last 10 years, there was a boom sort of 13, 14, 15, and then it's been flat pretty much ever since. And and what you would have paid for something in 2014, in a lot of cases, would still be the same value in 2020. So there was always going to be some upside because of the affordability. And, and when you get this yield requirement that says, like, if if rents are rising, generally speaking, they look at what will it cost me for a mortgage versus how much it costs me to rent. And because rents are on the increase because the vacancies are so low, all of a sudden it's it's more affordable to buy. But that's sort of weird because we've had 13 interest rate rises. So it's a really interesting time, which I haven't seen for, yeah, probably 15 years, to be honest. Mm. Mm. Rach, you've got a lot of clients and by you, I'd say your team, because you've got a a large team of quality brokers. You've got clients all around Australia. 
Do you guys notice anything from a bank or lending position with cities that are Perth or Adelaide that aren't on the East Coast? Like, are there any weird considerations that you've seen come up? No, I haven't seen anything change for those for those states. There's obviously postcode restrictions and there's restrictions if there's a town that has, you know, a one industry town, but not as a state, no. Mm. Oh, that's, that's good to know. And what we've, you know, been saying for months and months now, like you don't have to get a mortgage broker who lives in your suburb or is in the suburb that you want to buy. We want a good team behind us. Then 2023 coming to 2024, there is a thing called the interwebs and you can actually get stuff done from a team that isn't where you are exactly. So what else are you seeing out there, John? So what I'm hearing from you, Adelaide and Perth are the standouts this year, relatively speaking. Yeah, definitely in the last six months, they've been, the, the days on market are as, as slim as you would see around the country. Um, even places like Toowoomba, Brisbane's warm enough. Again, and, and I say this every time and, and when people say, what's the property market doing? We always say, well, it's property markets, but it's it's the asset type that is always different from region to region. So like, again, units are performing very differently to houses at the moment. And, and I think there's a backlog of growth in that unit sector where we may see a little bit of short-term uplift because of that lack of growth and then the unaffordability of houses. But it really depends on what price point you're playing in. But I think uh, from an investment point of view, people are searching for a little bit more yield now because of the high running costs of holding a mortgage. But also the the money that's flowing to units and apartments, that's just the cheaper for more people to spend 600000 on a unit than one point one on a freestanding house. Yeah, absolutely. And invariably they'll rent better from an investment point of view because there's no land component or very little land component. So they're not paying for the land on the way in, but they're still getting relative rents. Yeah. That's a controversial topic. So you're saying apartments make good investment properties. Are we saying that? <laughs> I'm doing gotcha journalism, Rach. No, we're not saying that at all, Glenn. Um, <laughs> we're saying it's, it's an investment option. Yeah. Yes. But there's probably no better time in the last five or six years to buy that type of asset if you want some short-term upside. But I reiterate short-term. Uh, again, we, we've, we're seeing, starting to see a little bit, vacancy rates are increasing just slightly in a few areas. So what's that space? But I think 2024 is exciting time for investors. I don't think there's blood on the streets. The, there's a little bit of a trickle, a bit of a nosebleed, but no gashes of blood, is that mm, a word? Sure. But those that are saying, well, I'm going to hold off for another six months to, to see the interest rates drop by a percent, I, I don't think it's going to happen. So, yeah, get in while the going is good. Reach out on the street in mortgage land, like we are starting to see now you would hope like the top of that bell curve of interest rate rises or we may be looking at one more and then they might start cutting them. I saw her on ABC News the other night, Alan Kohler was saying, I think Australia is one of three economies, advanced economies in the world that are still increasing their rates and everyone else is decreasing. So that with the comments from the new governor of the Reserve Bank, inflation's a homegrown problem and all that. And, you know, just as sidebar everyone, getting rid of the governor of the Reserve Bank wasn't going to make interest rates go down. Uh, I think that was some 
optics there. But uh, you just need to know that the Reserve Bank is a board and there is a chairperson and just replacing one person doesn't change policy. So having said all that, you're out there in interest rate land. Are banks still passing on 100% of the increase or have you seen instances where they're not? No, they're definitely passing all of that the increase on and they have done for every rate rise. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a really tough market for people this year, I think. Mm. And are you starting to see, so when we look at fixed rates, so sometimes with a fixed rate mortgage can be a bit of a forward looking prediction from the bank. Uh, Are you seeing any weird offerings coming out of fixed rates that are coming down in price or are they? Fixed rates are still higher than the variable by at least three to four rate rises. So you'd still need to have sort of four rate rises for people to think fixing is going to save them money in the next Mm. few years. I was talking with someone yesterday and I was at their house working through some issues just as a friend and they're about to come off a 2%. (laughs) And it's going to increase to six and a half in February. So mm-hmm. it's it's real. Yeah, I had to sit down with a client last week to let them know their payments were going up $35,000 a year. Oh, wow. And that, that's a tough conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. In saying that though, like I had this conversation with a client yesterday and they were like, it's their owner occupier and they're thinking of selling the property. And there's like an 800K mortgage. It's worth about a million. So they're leveraged at 80%. So reasonably new buying. But if they sold, what are they going to do? Like what is it going allow them to do versus saying, well, if we cut back here and there and maybe work a couple of hours because they're flexible with work, they can work a few more hours a week, we can actually make this work for the next 12 months based on the increasing repayments. Because if the, if the property value goes up by 5% on one mil, that's 50 grand that your wealth is growing by if you can hold out versus saying, well, I sell the property, I take my 200 or 150, what am I going to do with it? And that also means that they're out of the race. They're, they're not in the market somewhere So and they've got to go and rent. So the alternative is not always great. No, no. And look, they're going to they're gonna hold. That 35000 is something that they've, you know, seen coming. It's just such a big amount when you're going from that 199 to 6%. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whack. And I think it? it's important to know, and I want to kind of temper everyone's expectations that, you know, even if we do start to see an interest rate decrease in February or even first Tuesday of December, probably today when you're listening to this, <laughs> they'll be meeting. Um, if we do see an interest rate decrease things are going to be tight. I reckon we're in this cost of living crunch, I reckon for another couple of years because things take time. Things in the economy take time to to settle. They reckon an interest rate increase, one increase gets the full effect laid out within 18 months. That's what I've heard in terms of modelling. So there is a long time to go with this. Inflation numbers are slowly starting to come down. But I mean, it's I just want to, I don't like talking fear to everyone, but just tempering expectations that if there is an interest rate drop in the next three or four months, you know, things aren't dropping back. Like 
it's going to be tight for a few years. Yeah, well, they were very low. Those COVID rates, that was a that was an outlier. The rates yeah. don't usually sit at 2%. Like you, even when rates were 2%, it was always let's talk about five. Yeah. Let's say if you can hold it at five, what would it look like? And, you know, it is a little bit more than that five now. So hopefully we're hoping it might come back down to those five levels at some point. Mm. And, and us oldies, Rach, <laughs> um, president and company excluded. Thank you. We're... Um, we're used to the sixes and sevens, weren't we? Like prior, yeah. like when we're talking 2007. 2007. 2000, yeah, so we're talking, we, we're used to that coming in. So for the first time investors or, or homeowners that are coming in with 2% being the normal, it's like, oh, wow, this 6% is hitting me in the cheek. So if you're a first-time homeowner in this market, and we'll get to a heap of questions, everyone, so it's all good. I just want to, you know, chat a few things. If you're a first-time homeowner and a first-time mortgage in this climate, would you be fixing? Because I can't see a reason why you would. Well, I think when people fix, they tend to fix for their own emotional reasons of wanting to know what they're paying every week. They don't tend to fix to save money. So if you're looking to fix because you would love to go to sleep every night knowing what your payments are going to be for the next two years, amazing, you fix that loan. But if somebody asked me and if I, my personal opinion would be whether I'd fix to save money right now, I'd probably say no. And this is interesting because I was talking with a first home buyer just last week, dear friend of mine, I've been kind of coaching her a little bit more on the mindset of owning property, particularly for the first time. And she's in this position where she can borrow up to 550, but she is emotionally doesn't feel that because she wants to look around 500. And the numbers say that she can afford 550. And the difference is an apartment, maybe with two bed and one bath versus 550, two bed, two bath. Now, looking back and everyone listening who's purchased their first home ever, you have all this fear and, oh, nervous, nervous, need to fix, blah, 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 blah. I mean, rates, you broke a fixed rate for me a year after I got my first house because circumstances changed. I was used to it. I didn't need that and it stacked up to break it. But I said to her, I said, you need to get used to this kind of level and I want you to push. I want you to go to up to 550 just to get the bigger apartment because in three, four years time, I'd rather you own a bigger apartment that has two bed, two bath rather than one bath because it makes it more flexible. If you want another housemate, if you want to move out and put a tenant in, it just gives you those more options. And we're only talking, you know, maybe up to 30 grand, 40 grand difference, which isn't much week on week, but it's just that mindset of, I have to get comfortable and sometimes we just got to go through it or have someone walk beside us because I said to her, I guarantee once you get that place in a year's time, if you didn't spend the extra, your income's going to increase, you're probably going to go, I should have done that. And the cost to sell and buy is very expensive yeah. when you think about stamp duty and then all the agent fees to sell. So it is good to stretch yourself if if it's the right property. And asset performance too. Yeah, mm. yeah. And that's what I said. Like, so if we swing that mindset back to I'm nervous, I want to fix, I would probably just encourage you if you are going that way, don't do more than half of the loan on fixed. So you're saying, Rach, a percent higher 
if you fix now. Yeah, look, it varies across all of the banks, but it is it is quite a bit more to fix. Where pre-COVID, some of the fixed rates were less than the variable rates. So I wonder, are they doing a percent more because they actually don't know where, the banks might not actually know where we end up? Well, traditionally, fixed rates are higher than variable. It was a strange time we were in in the last three years. So I think a lot of people are sitting in their probably own property for a certain amount of time, might not have seen this before, but fixed rates should sit and traditionally sit higher than the variable. Yeah, so if you do the numbers on a 500k loan and let's say the interest rate, the minute variable is 6%, the fixed rate then might be 7%. So that's $96 a week that someone needs to come up with for the peace of mind you said that you can sleep at night. Yeah. Did you just know that off the top of your head? Yeah, maths is amazing. It's a strong point of mine. <laughs> Well, that's interesting and that's the trade-off. Do I want to be uncomfortable and learn a bit of risk-taking and live on the edge a little bit or do I want to spend an extra five grand a year not to lean into that? I'm saying if you look at those numbers, don't do fully fixed, do half because if you need to break it, you're only breaking half the loan and getting half the penalty. That's right. And that's the same if if you receive an inheritance of a million dollars and you're like, oh, I'm just going to put it in a term deposit for two years so I can't touch it split it up, do four turn deposits because if you need to break one, you're not foregoing. So it's a bit of risk management because I know the yeah the fix that I broke when you refired me once, it was only I think half of the total property loan or something like that or yeah. no more than 75%. And I just think it's important if people are looking at fixed loans, they do know that there is a possibility of that break fee mm. and to work out what that can possibly be. Yeah. And I suppose you talk about fear and emotion, all these things, like it's real, isn't it? Like it's it's actually out there and everyone's uh, a little bit concerned at the minute and the media also are a little bit fearful or putting fear into our lives. So as I mentioned before, the 2007, 2010 times, we're, we're still standing today. So we'll we'll get through and we'll adjust the new norm, but don't sit back and, and do nothing. Any big surprises that you've seen, Rach, from terms of a lending product or provider? Look, other than, um, I mean, obviously affordability has been a big thing. That's the biggest issue of the year is, you know, serviceability. So people are talking about serviceability. So some of the banks have brought out a few things to to ease that. Some of the things that were surprising was some of the banks have come out with some great stuff for self-employed people, making it a lot easier for self-employed people to borrow. Um, some of these things might just be a payslip that you can provide as a company director rather than tax returns. And a lot of the people through COVID who've had, you know, different losses in their business from different things, it's been becoming complicated. So that was a really surprising policy change and that's been great. Um, there's been banks that have increased their loan term. So we were having a chat about this in the car before, but there's a particular bank we've been using that offers a 35-year loan term. So that just makes affordability a little bit more affordable. Has yeah. that ever been done before? I haven't heard of it. This is my first time seeing a 35-year loan term and it's great when, for young people that are trying to enter the market when rates are so high. It's just making things a little bit easier. Now on that, I would usually say to Rage, who's the lender, but I don't want to say it because of what you talked about before with their application requirements and that you think it's probably better to go through a broker. Is that the Always. same lender? Yes. Yeah. So just tell us why and particularly more with that lender's assessment. 
It's just a, a very online process and you want to make sure everything's perfectly right before it goes in. So they're great rates and it's a great product, but you just want to make sure it's packaged to the bank exactly like it has to be the first time, which is why I would always recommend going to a broker. So can you expand on that for a minute? Why is that more important with, say, Ubank than it is with a CBA, for example? So from Commonwealth Bank, say, if you were to put an application in through the branch, you would also be dealing with a home lender that might sort of do a lot of that for you where someone like you bank, it's an online application system and it's yes or no and there might not be a second bite of the cherry. Right. And that's just so important and that's why, you know, if you went to your team, rates, they're not going to get a worse off interest rate than going direct. Absolutely same product, not. It's same exactly price. the same. Yep. So, I mean, seven out of 10 mortgages were written by a mortgage broker last quarter. Um, it's, it's, it's outstanding. I think people are realising that it doesn't cost any more. So why would you not use that service? Just the, the ease of it all, isn't it? But yeah. if they also get that no, that red light from Ubank, that's going to be hit on their file and affect future lending, isn't it? Yeah, or, you know, they might not take that again. If there's only that one particular bank doing the 35-year loan term, you want to make sure you get that right the first time. And are they stricter on, like, if I have a put my... And, and the reason why, you you put your bank account details in and the you bank will actually see your transaction. Yes. And their AI or systems will say this person, spends, online, yeah, yes. this person spends too much. So the problem is if you have a blowout month, that's all good, but you need to have the broker understand what we need to tell the loan assessor to make sure that it's gift wrapped the correct way. That's right. And it's all about commentary with things like that because they see everything, um, which is great for quick approvals and for keeping rates low because it's a low cost product, but it just has to be handled a particular way. So with this whole 35 year term, I would imagine before the next 12 months is out, there'll be other banks and lenders who are potentially looking at this should we, like, this is the whole thing with money and your personal finances, just because you can doesn't mean you should. No, it's not for everybody. Um, I was um, looking at a client profile the other day that was very, a, per- a perfect fit for this particular product because they just got their degrees. They both just got degrees. They were earning a certain amount and that amount was going to go up substantially. But they also didn't want to be having those costs that we were talking about before about buying and selling in a few years' time when their income went up. That's the right kind of person for that product. But if you were borrowing to absolute maximum, your income wasn't going to increase, we'd have a conversation about your long-term goals before we'd recommend a product like that. What do you reckon, Johnson? I, and you mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned it before, but it's, it's for owner-occupiers and investors. It is. So... I think it's it's actually a slight concern for an owner rock because essentially bad debt in my world anyway, it's non-tax deductible. So we're now saying we're giving ourselves permission to pay it down in 35 years instead of 30. So that's more interest payable. Yeah, but if you compare that to a 25-year-old taking out a 35-year loan term to a 45-year-old doing another 30-year refinance, you know, they're... Yep. The 25-year-old or the 30 or the 35-year-old buying their first home at a 35-year loan term, if they don't keep refinancing that, as traditionally has been the case, every few years back to 30 years, then I would think that constant refinancing at 30 years is actually worse long-term than taking a 35-year loan term and paying it down over 35 years. Bang, you should be in the debating team. I I like that. Yeah, because I disagree with your comments or have you agreeing now, John? Are you have you have you changed your stance? No, I haven't no, okay. changed my stance. I want to finish quickly. Yeah, do. I think it's great for investors. Okay. Because thirty-five years interest only means they're running 
costs weekly are going to be less, which means they can handle a better asset that's going to yield slightly better as a net result, uh, meaning they can buy. They'll also do that five years interest only rolling over to 30-year P&I at the end, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So owner-occupier, mm. if you could get an interest only for the first five years, I mean, sure, it's not ideal and it's not ideal to have a loan term for 35 years and maybe I'll answer it with my scenario of why I don't think it's such a big issue. And these words probably wouldn't have come out of my mouth five or six years ago because there wasn't a rental crisis. There wasn't an affordability crisis. Inflation wasn't nuts. Like it's a totally new world. Also saw Aladdin on Broadway in New York. Would recommend. I've got friends. She's 31 or 32. How old are you, Beck? Let me know. He's 37, 38. Two kids, two full-time jobs, renting at um, like East Gosford, just a rental near work and schools and all that. Really hard to save for a home deposit. And it's been a goal of theirs for some time to buy a house. I'm thinking that like if, if they went and saw your team, Rach, and traditionally like, yep, sorry, we can't get this to service, no house for you. If you're like, oh, we can do this for 35 years, I'm like, friggin' lock that in. This is provided that we're not spending more than 30% of our weekly income on mortgage payments and all that stuff. So all that aside, it's not like do 35 years and pay 50% of your salary. So if that stacks up in this climate, I'm doing it because the benefits to someone's lifestyle to own the house, if it is a goal, to not get crazy rent increases, to not get told they've got to move and then the pressure of finding a house and I'm just thinking it could be a good thing. No, I just think you get in the market Mm. and you stay in the market. So the conversations we're having with clients at the moment are a lot around how do you stay in the market? What can we do to help you stay in the market? And sometimes that is extending out loan terms. So there are clients that have paid their home loan off for six years. They've got 24 years left that we are stretching it out to 30 years. And if that means they can stay in their home and still afford to keep their children in private school, let's do that. Yeah. Mm. No, I agree with Mm. both of those. Uh, I didn't say it was a no, right? <laughs> I said it was a concern for those that stick the 35 out. Uh, we want to pay it down sooner mm. than that, don't we? Have you got sh- sore shoulders at the moment from all that backstroke you were just doing? <laughs> Whatever, mate. We'll take a break and we'll be back right after this and we're going to answer some listener questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, welcome back to the community segment of the week where we ask you questions in the Facebook group. And the same four people answer them every week and get on the podcast. <laughs> but we can't do this section without the team at Sky Wealth. You've got to make sure you get your life insurance and your income insurance sorted. I've going through some stuff with some people I know at the moment. It's a terminal case. There's a young family involved and there's no life insurance and it is heartbreaking. And I've seen the difference when I've gone through this journey helping people over the years when there is a terminal diagnosis and there is a terminal illness life insurance benefit, which is built into the death cover, it makes all the difference. Just picture right now your family, John, picture this, your family, three young kids, your spouse, you know, Amy, you go to the doctor next week and they said, oh, you've got this cancer, we can't treat it. You're now uninsurable and you've got no life insurance or income insurance. Like, can you imagine the level of stress that you carry when money is not going to come in the door and you can't work? So I'm just always passionate about this and thanks to Sky Wealth for supporting the podcast. Please get it sorted, sky.com.au. And yes, they support the podcast. If you think I'm conflicted, I don't care, go and get it from somewhere else. I just need everyone to get life and income insurance as a minimum. So we asked everyone, how would you respond to someone who's telling you how you should manage your money? Daniel Quinn writes, depends if I paid them to tell me. Right. Now, that's a good one. Yes. Yeah. Sheridan. Oh, Sheridan's gone hard. The same way I respond to people telling me how to manage any other aspect of my life. Thank you very much for your advice. I'll give that some thought, then do whatever I want to do. Karen said, you're not my real dad. Is that an inside joke or something? Because these people laugh to that. Well... Because dads tell their kids what to do. Oh, okay. It's not inside, just being a I parent. Just... <laughs> You're not there yet. What's that like? You still got your kids or you got rid of them? <laughs> I still got them. Oh, okay. See them occasionally. What did Deco say, Rach? I'll listen to hear if there's anything I can learn or benefit from, evaluate how relevant the info is to my circumstance and financial goals before doing further research. Oh, that's my favourite response. Mm. Mm, very good. Melanie, bruh. Why, why do you think I'm in this group in the first place? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's cool she's used, bruh. Sandra, I would listen and give it due consideration. Ultimately, it's up to you to do what you want. Note, without understanding the backstory on why they feel compelled to give you advice, I don't really think anyone can provide a fair response to this question. E.g., if you are snorting half your income, then yeah, advice might be warranted you're snorting half your income. So that's the advice like don't snort your income. What what does snorting your income mean? Putting putting your $50 notes what? up your nose. Rachel's doing some um, 
because this is a, a general rated podcast for children as well, Rach. Mm. Can you tell all the kiddies at home what uh, sign language you were doing with your bit of paper there and your finger and your nose? Look like a good technique. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit concerned. Anyway, I don't, have no idea what that means. No. Uh, but yeah, if you're having nose beers, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> and Jay said, but what colour is your Bugatti? Mm. So one thing I want everyone to hear in relation to this responding to things, because you guys would see it all the time, wouldn't you? Like you're talking with clients and their family member are like, oh, I'm not sure if mum would this or that or whatever. I want to encourage everyone when you are listening to this podcast and you are in the Facebook group and you're really confident with your money and managing money, you may be a lot further down the education confidence and risk profile track than your close friends and family members. So that's why you have to be really careful with where and who you listen to in your close world. Now, what you could say is, hey, friend or family member, I am doing this. It could be I'm buying a new house, an investment property, or investing in shares. I, I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm asking for your support. It's simple as that. Sounds like a text message we exchanged last week. Yeah, John sent me a message because I text him and I'm like, should I sell this property? And he's like, are you asking for my advice or my support? And I just wrote, yes, please, puppy. <laughs> like both. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. that's it, isn't it? Like yeah. I'm, I need your support as a close friend or family member. I've seen John. We've got a really good property coaching strategy happening. I've done a clarity call with a third party who just wants me to succeed with no vested interest. I've seen Rachel's team, the mortgage structure's awesome. I've got my income protection sorted. So if I can't afford the mortgage because I can't work because I'm sick, they're not gonna take the house. You may have your financial house in order and so more advanced than your friends and family, but just have confidence that you are more down this road than a lot of people that you talk to. Yeah, and I suppose in addition to that, do they actually need to get people's support? Maybe they don't need to tell as many people as they, they might be excited about it, but doesn't mean we have to tell the world about it. What I did in my own life with my family, I, I'll use two examples. Mum used to freak out when I was talking about getting my motorbike license and getting a motorbike as you know, a good mother would. So what I did, I told her after the fact, <laughs> like, <laughs> I've got my motorbike license now. <laughs> and then same with my, like an investment property, told my parents and family, I bought this. Not mm. I'm going to, what do you think? Should I? Yeah. But yeah. that's that's going to be dependent on where they're at in their own financial journey. Yeah. And one thing I would say as well with, you know, responding to someone who's telling you how you should manage your money, someone said like, what are they, where, it's, where is it coming from? You've got to have a good like toxic, jealous radar meter. And if someone's jealous of you or covets you or whatever, that's an old school world word, welcome mm. to 1821, that's not healthy. And it's probably a good indication that they're probably not as close a friend as what you would have thought. Yeah, and if it's coming from a good place, maybe do take that time just to listen. Absolutely. I'm a property pusher in my circle of friends. So I'm, I, mm. I am. I If somebody's saying that they're going to 
rent and I'm saying buy a property, like I do push it. So it's coming from a good place. You're one of yeah. those people. <laughs> I am. Oh, wow. And uh, we're advertising Rachel's new development <laughs> where John and I get a $30,000 cash back for promoting it on the podcast, <laughs> uh, which we do not do. So, yeah, that's, that's cool. Well, let's swish out of this um, community segment of the week and answer some mortgage questions. Probably the longest segment we've had in a while. Oh, you better believe it. Okay, this is one for John and Rach. Emily asks, steps from PPOR, personal place of residence, to PPOR plus IP, investment property, and which order to take the steps in. So let's talk from a strategy property vibe first. Mm. And then when you're finished, John, you might throw to Rach or... Rach might jump in and be like, no, no, John, but before you go to step two, make sure this is done. So I'll let yeah, you guys yeah. do this while I have a drink and surf. Well, yeah, I would actually send them to Rach first because mm. essentially we've got a principal place of residence, we've got some debt, we've got a value, but we don't know what the value is. So that would be the first step for me, Rach, would be to, to go and get evaluation and just see what your serviceability is like, as in how much can you lend and how much equity we can potentially take out of the property, which is your difference between your value and your debt minus, well, times by 80% if that sort of makes sense. I bungled yeah. that. But, um, yeah, so we've got a million-dollar property and a debt's $500 million times 80% is 800 minus your 500 There's 300K of usable equity. Can we use all that? Depends on the income. But I need to know that before I set a strategy for that investment property. Yeah, that's right. So generally at this point, we'd sit down exactly as you said, work out the value of the property, work out how much usable equity you have, work out how much you can borrow, and then you're ready to start to talk about strategy, which is where they mm. come back to you. And, and I think they don't, and you may disagree with me, Rach, like you have done the whole episode, but um, you, you don't need a pre-approval before talking strategy. I think we can get a general borrowing capacity and a pretty strong servicing check and, and all the documents are in, but we haven't pressed go on the pre-approval submission just because from a searching perspective, generally pre-approvals last 90 days and the clock's ticking as soon as you've got that pre-approval and things may change at the end of those 90 days. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. Oh, that's completely right. And generally pre-approvals are there when you start to look. We know if something's going to service, mm. um, unless there's something we don't know on somebody's credit file or, you know, there's something that in the background we don't know. We know if it's going to work. So I don't think there's a reason to get a pre-approval before there is a reason to get a strategy. Yeah, okay. So so Emily's then saying, well, okay, where do I, what, what type of property do I want? What's my max purchase price? What's going to keep me awake at night? Am I a borderless investor? Do I want to buy local or interstate or wherever? What type of property do I need? What yields are going to bring in or what yield do I need based on my requirements of my life and my mortgage that I've got in my own home? And, and whose names are going to be in? What deposit am I putting down? And what locations are going to be in? Once we've got answers to all that, then let's go shopping. Love it. So we speak to Rach's team, see which way the wind's blowing. Like, hey, realistically, you won't be able to borrow more than 500. Sweet. Go get strategy. Okay, what do you want to do? I want a townhouse. I want low maintenance or I want to buy a bigger block that maybe there's a shack on it so one day I can knock it over and build two townhouses. Sweet. Strategy's locked in. Then we go back to Rach's team. Now, how do you set up a mortgage potentially in concert with using equity from the existing PPOR to buy the new investment property. 
So once we once we know what the strategy is, then we start to get the approvals in place. And so there'd be generally we'd look at your the the home you've got in place now, what that value is. We'd get a separate split organised against your home, which would be an investment split, and that would generally be around 20% of the value of the new property that you're buying plus any associated costs. And then we'd have a pre-approval in place for 80% of the value of the investment property. So those two loans would be secured against different properties, but your account would know that together they're both tax deductible against your new investment property. So we're utilising the equity in your own home to buy the investment property, but we're keeping those securities separate. Question, the second mortgage that is the 20% of the investment property that's secured against the principal place of residence, would they keep that second split at home rates or investment property rates? Generally, they would be at investment property rates and we can negotiate the rate with the bank on the aggregate borrowing. So this could all be with the same bank, even though it's separated securities. And we might have, you might have a $500,000 mortgage now, but your total lending might be over a million. So we're going back to that bank negotiating rates based on the aggregate borrowing those two together. So we might even get a better rate on your home loan at the time but there would still be an investment rate on the investment split. So there's effectively two mortgages. And if we assume that we're borrowing, I think you used a mill before, but I'll do 500, $400,000 mortgage against the new house and a a $100,000 mortgage against the principal place of residence. So total 500 grand debt, not including stamp duty. Is it ever possible where the main house is with, say, CBA or something like that. We set up a second split with CBA for 100 grand. And then for whatever reason, circumstance, occupation at the time, an investment property wouldn't service with CBA, but we can get it with another lender. Can we then get another mortgage with another lender? We absolutely could. And sometimes that's part of their their requirements. Some people do want to spread banks for some for one reason or another. So that can be split between two banks because the securities are completely separated. So that means you're effectively, when you set up a mortgage correctly for a second property, there's, if you are using equity, there should be best practice two applications. There should be, yes. Talk to us what happens when there's only one application where there might be a a lazy broker, a broker that doesn't know strategy or a lazy lender. Let's not use the word lazy. Let's (laughs) let's use less educated. John and I had this happen between ourselves 10 years ago. (laughs) What did you set up? I did because I was straight out of the bank and that's exactly how we did it at the bank. I called her on it. We talked. (laughs) It was a bit rough there early days, Rachel. We've moved past it. Lazy or or bank trained. Or bank trained. trained. Okay. Okay. So in bank land. In bank land, we were taught to take the two properties and for simplicity for the client, one do one application and do a loan for, if that investment property was 500000 you do a, a loan for five twenty-five, so 100% plus costs. And then the two loans and the two properties are then intertwined. But then the bank has control mm. over the client. Simplicity in bank terms means control. Means more clause. <laughs> yeah, but also if you're in bank land and you're in a, a big environment where you've got lots of people coming in, mm it's probably a lot faster to cross them. Yeah, it is. It's, it's less paperwork. One application, 100%. cross them, see you later. You got your house, you're happy. There's not one ounce of strategy involved. 
And it also takes a little bit more time to explain it to the client. So the clients need to understand why they're two splits. Why? And a lot of the time a client will say, no, I don't want that. I just want one loan. And we have to take that extra time to go, well, this, this is the what's in it for you doing it this way and why there's two splits. I know it looks more complicated on internet banking, yeah. but these are the things that could potentially happen if you don't cross them if you do cross them rather, and that might be when the valuation of one property goes down, it will affect your entire portfolio. You might have trouble downsizing or upsizing your house or in your when you're transitioning to retirement and you're selling an investment property, the bank can reassess all of your lending every time you sell a property where if you've got these securities separated, in that strategy, you can sell and do whatever you like with the extra funds, whether you want to pay it down off your home loan or if you want to put it in super, it's your choice. Yeah, the all monies clause comes into play there That's as well. That's right. So without getting too deep into the weeds, 500K property, you said, Glenn, 20% deposit, would you contemplate a 10% equity deposit not a 20% if the LMI could be waived because they're occupation or would you generally take 20? Well, if, if somebody did qualify for a 90% no mortgage insurance loan, if that person was, you know, a registered nurse or a, or a doctor, you would usually do the 10% because you can or some people would prefer to pay the mortgage insurance because it is tax deductible for an investment property and have the ability to utilise their equity more. Love it. And, and just further question, the nurse example they may be with a lender at the moment with their PPOR that doesn't waive the LMI just because they might have didn't know or had a lazy broker. And it's new. And, and it's new. A less educated broker, a I believe. Ed- <laughs> so you may need to refi to another lender to get that no yes. LMI. That may be a situation where you might refinance. That's right. Or you could be with a lender that does it now, but they didn't have it in their in their suite at the time you borrowed. So it's, a, it's an in, you could even do an internal refinance and have that. If someone was in one of the listed occupations and wanted to buy a second property as an investment, the lenders will still waive LMI, like it's not first home. You can do your entire portfolio at 90%. Gosh. We used to have it in the bank. You could do 90%. They used to do it for bank managers. Do you reckon I could get across the line as like an entertainer? Do you know that I, yeah, yeah, we've got an entertainment segment in one of the banks and I'm more than happy to explore it for you. By definition, I don't know, but technically the entertainer does qualify, Glenn. Sports sports people, sports coaches, authors. I'm an author. Yeah. Hey, speaking of authors, everyone, uh, we haven't really started to announce it yet, but I will now because it's December. John Pigeon is releasing a property book in February and it's called Sort Your Property Out and Build Your Future. Did I? Something like that. Read something like that? Yes. I remember I made it up. I think Uh, you, yeah, (laughs) and and created the forward. Yes, Yes. that's right. Yes, Yes. Uh, there's a forward by Glenn James. Um, And one of the things, so I I proofed the book along, you know, the journey of you writing it Mm. just out of curiosity and well, slash control yeah. slash control. Well, you know, yeah. you're using my brand, so whatever. Absolutely. You really detail your eight point strategy in mm. that book. And I honestly, guys, it is a very practical book. And if you want to support John and us and the podcast, mm. please place a pre-order. We'll put a link in the show notes under 30 bucks. It's still, it's pretty chunky like our other books. Like it's a big, it's a big baby. 335 pages, I believe, yeah. I edited last week. Yeah. And not only you support the podcast, it is such good information that if you got one thing out of that book, it could actually make the difference 
with you saving a hundred grand mm. because you didn't do something or you didn't cross the securities or whatever. Like, and yeah. you know, one thing I really loved about it, and I haven't told you this, this is the first time. There you go. Is that, and I wish I did this in my money book. Mm-hmm. You did some actual case studies where you've listed people's situations and you've like, well, based on what this is, this is what I would do. So you can read, you know, someone's situation, it's a couple or a single, this is their property goals, they want to do this. John's gone and as examples saying, based on this, I'll do this, 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 this is why. Mm. And even that is so valuable. So good on you for doing that. Yeah, cool. Um, The interesting part was the editor Mm. coming from the outside looking in, Because we talked about that eight-point strategy and and I had it at the start of the book or reasonably early on, goals, cash flow, finance, okay, bang, eight-point strategy. And the editor's like, whoa, 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 you're going to blow everyone up if you have it that early because there's so much intense information in it. Really? So we then decided to spread it through the book, which, yeah, was very valuable for us because I totally agree when you look back on it, Mm. a first-time property purchaser would, uh, yeah, could, could get caught. And the unique thing about the book, and if everyone can indulge me for one second while I sell this book to you all, <laughs> you have really tackled the first home to live in and investment property because in a perfect world, any property purchase, you would want to be a good purchase, a good buy. Mm. And Sometimes it's a lifestyle play and I'm buying this to live in and this is the town and it's a two horse down and I don't care because I want to own it. But a lot of the time you can buy well still and live in it. Well, and and that's always my first priority. Mm. And secondary is, okay, I don't mind these things in a house when I buy it or an apartment or whatever. But first and foremost, if you can buy well rates the first time round, it sets you up for the next 10 years, 20 years plus, doesn't it? versus the contrary where you buy in five years' time it's worth the same amount. If I haven't got any cash savings, I can't do anything. That's right. Mm. So sort your property out and build your future. Is that what it is? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sort your property out and build your future. Okay. John Pigeon and Glenn James. Look at that. There you go. Um, So, yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Please support your own property investing journey. Support your own property buying journey to live in, whether you're buying your first property or your second or fifth, you'll be able to support yourself muchly by that book. All right, let's get into some other questions and we might kind of really answer them fast. Do you want me to set like a 30 second, mm-hmm. a, a one minute timer of yeah, each question? And we're going to put Rach under the, um, yeah, Rach. under the clock because I want to get to as many as possible. Uh, Jay's question. This will be a good one as in this episode because we mentioned it. <laughs> oh, the question. Yeah, well, the question probably be good. I'm going to just do a minute and a half. What can you do when your traditional servicing is tapped out and the big banks say we can't lend you any more? What ways can you get creative? I think that's when you would go to a broker and talk about what other banks, maybe some of the smaller lenders have different policies to say, what what can we do to borrow more? And that might be there's banks that take higher amounts of rent. There's banks that take more negative gearing. There's banks that will, they're definitely banks that when you put a few investment properties in, they have some really big differences in what you can actually borrow. So I would say to go and see a really good broker that knows a lot about investment lending and just see you, for your personal situation, how you can stretch that. You've got a team that just does investment. We do. Yeah. 
Okay, that's cool. One other question. Do you think it's sometimes commercial with the banks that they are more commercial with more properties to get more debt? Take a little bit more risk? I think before the Royal Commission, the banks were really keen on lending more to investors, but that Royal Commission that happened changed things. So some of the banks got spanked for having too many investors on their books or for not lending responsibly enough for investors. So they've got policies in place now that aren't just their policies, but they've been enforced by government agencies that are saying you have to be more conservative. So when they're not lending you money, knowing that they make money from lending, it's not because they don't want to, it's because they're being, you know, they've got these responsible lending guidelines that they really have to adhere to. So when the bank's not lending you money, they are, they want to lend you money, they're going to make money from it, but they can't. Why do banks now charge a higher interest rate for investment lending? I did see it here, but I So there's two reasons for that. One is they price for risk. So investment lending on a bank's book might be deemed to be some higher risk than owner-occupied lending. So they might be pricing that for risk. The other thing is we just talked about the Royal Commission before where that came in and changed things. And some banks were trying to slow down the amount of investment lending they had. So banks want a certain amount of home lending and a certain amount of investment lending. And the levers that they pull to control that is rate. But that was more so a tap on the shoulder from APRA. It was. Yes. Yeah. But now the banks still want to say we've got we, we want to slow down our investment lending, so we'll increase the rate. This is a bugbear of mine. Why do banks see it as riskier to have an investment property than a principal place? I certainly don't agree with that statement, but they do deem it to be more risky because they've got a warehouse of data. So I've looked at the, I think it was Commonwealth Bank that did a session on this a few years back. So they had a warehouse of data and more investment lending went into arrears than home lending because people, it's a psychology thing where people don't let their home go in arrears. They're more likely to let their investment property go into arrears when they, when tough times hit. And that's why it's more risky because it's a higher arrears on their book. Yeah, there you go. Mm, cool. All right, next question. Wes, how do banks view a single person versus a couple even when the incomes are the same? So if you're looking at a single person with the same income as a couple with the same income, obviously the living expenses are different. So a couple has living a different living expenses. But if you're talking about, let's say Glenn and I are buying a house together and we're on 100000 each, if we're a couple, the bank will actually lend us more than if we're two singles buying a house because our living expenses are joint if we're a couple. So that's kind of like the scale, like you, if you're a couple living together and you rent 600 a week, you've instantly got half rent each. Yeah. And all the other living expenses get mm. shared when you're a couple. But if you're two singles, say investing together, there's mm. two sets of single living expenses. Also, there's the tax rate. So if you, if we were on 100,000 each or there's a single person on 200,000, that 100000 each is actually a lot more net in, in the bank account when you look at tax rates. Mm, good answer. And you beat the clock, so well done. <laughs> it's like a little test at Glenny's house, isn't it? Jacinta, this is a very interesting question. Can you discuss the mortgage prison that we're getting stuck in? What can we do about it besides trying to earn more money and spend less? How can the bank say we can't service a loan at a lower rate when we're currently paying huge repayments on 7.8%? Yeah, Jacinta, I don't think you should be on 7.8% and I would love to have a chat to you about that. Now, even people, and there is a mortgage prison, there are a lot of people that cannot refinance currently. So that is a mortgage prison, but it doesn't mean that you should be stuck on 7.8%. You can still negotiate with your bank without refinancing. You can renegotiate. 
I would love to have a chat to you, even if we can't refinance you. It'd just still be good to help you just to give you a tip on what you can do. And I'll give you an example. Um, so I've got a team that price our book. So they their full-time job is to go through and try to get better rates for our clients. If they can't get a better rate, it goes to a broker to refinance them. And if they can't refinance, it comes to me. So I had one that came to me last week and he was on 7.5 with a bank on a basic product. We couldn't get him a better price. They wouldn't come to the party. They couldn't, he couldn't refinance. He'd become self-employed and we definitely couldn't do that. And then when he came to me, I went to the bank directly and we changed his product. So the product got switched to something with an annual fee, which was $399 a year, but we saved him $3,000 in interest. Now the person on the end of the end of the line at the bank may not have put that suggestion out, but there's always ways to do it. So I just think if you're on something starting with a seven, whether you think you can afford the loan or not, please have a chat to us. So are you saying they can retweak a product without reassessing the whole thing? They can. Okay. Can I ask you a question? The people I was talking about earlier that I've been working with who are going through hell and, you know, all that stuff with a very grave illness, both of them, obviously one isn't working at the moment on Centrelink. The spouse is on carer's pension and these are 30-year-old people. Like this is crazy. They've got a mortgage with CBA and it's about to roll off 2%. My, and this is the difference, guys, like it's really been a tough week uh, for me walking through such a savage situation because there isn't any life insurance or a terminal illness benefit. We've got a mortgage that is about to go to 6.5% and you've got two people that are effectively just on Centrelink at the moment. My suggestion to them was in an ordinary world to take a bit of pressure off, we may move the home to interest only. However, that would usually require a reassessment. And I said, however, you may need to talk to CBA and get them to move that on compassionate grounds. Have you seen that work? So a few years ago, you would be able to just switch that to interest Mm. only. Now, interest only is a full credit decision. So that's not something that would be open to them, which is a shame because that would take the pressure off. Mm. But Commonwealth Bank have some excellent compassionate Mm. um, grounds. They've got They've even got one for domestic violence, which we helped a client mm, with I recently, and it's amazing. So I think that they, I would say your friends should contact. Yeah, if you are actually, if you're high up in Commonwealth Bank in lending and you're listening to this, can you just flick me a DM if you can help? And I might introduce you to this couple just to help on compassionate grounds. I did say go back to your broker and all that, but I, because I legitimately didn't know. I'm like, look, ordinarily, if you're going through a hard time, like two people got laid off work, we want to keep the house because there's a child and a baby. Let's just do interest only, get back on track. I would Uh, say that would be one of the best banks to be with if you're in that sort of situation. So just quickly to finish off on Jacinta's question, like how does the bank say no when going from 7.8 to 6.8 because the repayments are are lower? So she's correct, but why do the bank say no to that? So the bank has to show that you can service the loan in today's environment before they refinance you. That's something they have to be able to do. So even if you're paying more now, they can't refinance you to a lower rate. There are some products that came out this year that banks brought out that was if you were paying, because it's a 3% buffer. So let's say the rate is 6%. You have to be able to service it at 9%. That's huge. But there's some products that have come out this year with the banks that only have a 1% buffer if you're not increasing your lending. So if you're refinancing dollar for dollar from one bank to another for rate, which is people like this, 
you only have a 1% buffer rather than a 3% buffer. So while your bank not might, might not be able to do it, another bank may. Mm. So I just think it's worthwhile chatting to a broker. That doesn't fit everybody because a lot of people currently can't even afford that 1% buffer mm. and they still want a lower rate. Uh, so Jacinta, just go to spherehomeloans.com.au, fill out the form and say, uh, Glenn and Rach said to contact them after you heard yourself your question asked on the podcast and we'll get you connected through to Rach for a phone call. That's right. And even if we can't help you in a way that we're getting the business, my team are more than happy to help you and guide you negotiating with your bank. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. This is out of question time. Mm-hmm. Um, As in edit this out or? <laughs> no, no, keep it in but just not including the two and a half minutes. Yeah, I've stopped that. Can't be bothered. Um, different climates all the time with lending. Are banks jumping over each other to... to find new business more so than say 12 months ago? I would say they're more focusing on retaining business now. So the banks have actually caught on that, you know, it's cheaper to keep your clients than to try to go out and buy new clients. So those refinance rebates are just about gone now, which is great. And and the retention period, the retention teams of banks are working harder to keep clients they have. So my team is spending a lot more time negotiating with their existing bank rather than moving people. Yeah, cool. Next question, uh, it's similar vein around refinancing. Natasha said, can a bank refuse to refinance you? My bank said that now I have a child, I can no longer service my loan and refuse to refinance me. They offered 7.29. This goes back to that point that I made. That the bank has to show that you can afford the loan today. So it makes no sense. And I completely agree with you. It makes no sense. But from their legislation, they can't refinance you. If they got audited, if APRA came in and said, show me this client could afford this loan today when you wrote it, they would get a huge fine. So it's not about them not wanting to. However, I think the banks are making money off the fact that a lot of people can't refinance. So I think what we need to do is try to get your rate lower without refinancing you because you're not going to be able to refinance. Now, ANZ are doing some great retention things at the moment. I just think it's about pulling the right triggers or talking to the right people to get them to come to the party for you. They matched something the other day for a client and then offered them a cashback to stay. Oh, God. Mm. Wow. I, I need to actually review mine again. And just on that refinance thing, I actually, it's on our list here. I forgot to mention it after the community segment. You and Melanie Rose and your team are doing a refinance digital workshop we on are. Tuesday, the 12th of December. That's next Tuesday night, everyone. And we're going to actually have, we've got a session on that fast refinance that Jacinta wrote about here, which is where the servicing is based off the loan. It's actually 1% high, but it's based off a smaller buffer. Yeah. Which is really helping people. Yeah. Interesting. Ask your broker about a fast refi. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to register for that digital workshop. Just a Zoom link. You'll keep it snappy an hour. You'll go through everything people need to know about refinancing. What about um, would you give tips around calling your lender about asking for a rate review before and all that stuff? It's not in the it's not in the session, but we can definitely cover that. Right. Cool, cool, cool. Awesome. Send me the link. I'll send it out. All right. Just on the mechanics of mortgage brokers and being clients, Matt said, when does the home buyer become a pest? Recently purchased a home with my partner and not sure if I, the way I handled our end was annoying. Uh, and then in following that, Aaron said, how often is it okay to contact a broker to see if they can source better deals? So two questions there. There's got to be a, a part of, particularly the 
team in your business, Rach, who are dealing with first home buyers, we know that there will be a high level of handholding and reassurance and support. And that's surely got to come with the territory. It does come with the territory. And that's why we have brokers that deal with first home buyers. They have a lot more time and patience and will deal with all of those questions. And they're happy to talk to somebody for a year before they buy. And they're happy to explain everything in detail. So I don't think, Matt, I don't think you should ever feel like a pest being a first home buyer. You deserve to get all of that information all the way through. And Mm. if a broker or a or a solicitor doesn't want to deal with first home buyers, then they then sometimes they shouldn't. At least he's a self-aware pest, <laughs> self-aware pest like me. <laughs> you own it. Oh, mate. I did a thing the other day to the, the property agent here. I was like, look, I know I'm a pain in the ass, but I just need to tell you, you said that you always return calls. Here's a text message of all the time I've messaged you and you've never called me back. <laughs> I'm moving everyone. I've got a new apartment. I'm over it here. Um, anyway. Uh, and then <laughs> and Aaron said, how often is it okay to contact a broker to see if they can source a better deal? I think that the broker should be reviewing your home loan at least once a year, whether you contact them or not. But there's nothing wrong with you contact, contacting your broker, say quarterly to say, can I just check that I'm still on the good a good rate, especially when there's movement. So if there hasn't been any rate rises, then maybe once a year is enough. But at the moment, every time the rates go up, sometimes the banks are coming out and offering better deals for new business. And we want to make sure that you're getting the best rate that the bank has available. So we're probably reviewing more so three times a year rather than one in this volatile environment. Mm. Samu said refinancing an investment property as a contractor, you'll probably cover that within the refinance thing because it is a new assessment and because when this goes back to setting up well, if your circumstances change, if you've got a couple of properties, you want them separate so they're not crossed. In a perfect world, if you do have, if you're going to have 30 or 40 grand in cash at all times as an emergency fund, buy a new house, buy a new home, get an offset facility. Because you just want the most flexibility going forward, because in three or four years' time, if you then became a contractor and rates increased, guess what? You might not be able to refinance and you've got no levers to pull on your current product. That's right. You need to do all these things before you become self-employed. So if you need to borrow money, if, you need to, if you've got an investment portfolio, before you become self-employed, you refinance them all to interest only as long as you possibly can before you make that move. Because once you become a contractor or self-employed, it does become a little bit harder. But there's all different types of contractors and there's all different types of banks that have different policies for it. So if you're a contractor contracting to one person, say you're contracting to somebody who you used to work for, but now you're a contractor, some banks will take that pretty much straight away. But if you're a contractor that you're working for multiple different sources, well, they need to see consistency. Mm. But again, there's banks that do that better than others. There's also a bank that if you're a contractor now, they will look at your income for the last two years as an employee and use that. Mm. So just because you're a contractor doesn't mean you can't borrow for a certain amount of time. It just means we need to play a game of guess who to see who's going to be best suited to you. And newly self-employed doesn't always mean no loan if you've moved from I'm an employee X 
Mm. And now I'm doing the same career, same industry, just by myself. That's right. And some banks are just much more commercially minded with that sort of thing. So there was an accountant we had that bought his own, became self-employed as an accounting firm. But he'd been an accountant on this salary for six years beforehand. And basically, as soon as he went self-employed up, we could still get him a loan based on the fact that he could always go back Mm. to making that income. That was a you know, that wasn't in policy. That was something we got approved as an exception. But you just need to, it needs to make sense. And this is not isolated, just job change, is it? Like it's it includes planning to have kids. It includes getting yourself a car loan. Like you've got to think two, three, five years in advance, don't you, when, mm. you, when you're making these big life decisions. Laura, do you have to withdraw your first home super saver scheme amount at a certain time before you go in for pre-approval or... Do you just bring your determination report to the pre-approval and withdraw it when you actually go to buy, put the deposit down? I think that it's it's always best to leave it until you know exactly what you're doing. Mm. So a pre-approval doesn't mean that you're actually going to buy. So you can just bring the determination, determination to us or to, to whoever your broker or your lender and then they use that and then you take it out at the right time with the right advice. Yeah, and I would, yeah, this is probably the question that I would caveat with uh, follow the advice and the process of your individual broker based on your individual circumstances because there could be a different answer if you're going to auction and you're using the first home super saver scheme versus um, normal private treaty sale or whatever. Yeah, and we always like the solicitor to be across that as well when they're taking that out. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Let's finish up with two questions. One's a little bit juicy, one's boring. Uh, Richard, you're not boring. Your question is, what sort of expense tracking data is beneficial to gather before seeking help from a broker to help expedite the process? So in a perfect world, when you've got a new client and we'll just assume first property, what do you need to see from Dickie? We have a system that sort of can can extract all of that for you. So we have a portal that you can put your codes in and all of your bank statements and things come into our portal and goes through our system. So we can see all of that. But for your own information of what you want to borrow, it's great if you can have a budget first and know what your expenses are, because then you know actually how much disposable income you have and how much you may want to borrow. Because what we tell you you can borrow is not necessarily what you want to borrow. What you want to borrow is whatever rent you're paying now, plus the disposable income that you've got after all of your expenses. And those expenses change between people. So I think keeping a budget or knowing your expenses beforehand is great. Is it going to expedite the approval process? No. Is it great for you to understand what you want to borrow? Yes. Mm, Cool. Last question, Dylan. Credit fraud. My credit is effed. I've been trying to fix it for two years now. Would this affect servicing also? Low income, 70K. Partner, stay at home, one child on parenting payment. How far off am I seeing a mortgage broker? I do want to buy a PPOR or an investment property at some stage, but still slowly saving and fighting this economy at the moment. I mean, the credit fraud is less of an issue than servicing in this. Well, yeah, the credit fraud doesn't affect servicing, but you're going to have trouble borrowing until that's fixed. So I think it's really important to have a chat to a broker and a broker can tend to can recommend you to someone to help fix that. If it was fraud, let's get it off your credit. It shouldn't still be effed. Yeah, so this is, yeah, basically. So this is why I subscribe to, I think it's $15 a month, Equifax, 
they send me a report every month. I don't look at it because I don't give a crap about my credit score because half of it's a joke anyway and I can get into that on another episode. So why are you paying $15 a month? I'm about to get to that, Johnson. Okay. Because I get an email notification anytime there's an inquiry or any movement on my credit file. Got one the other day because I was a directorship change that I was on. So for me, I don't want to end up like Dylan three years down the line, two years down the line, go to get a loan and finding out that I've got credit fraud because it can take a while. Mm. Now, a couple of things you need to know about bad credit ratings, everyone. If you were sloppy and you've moved out of a rental and you didn't cancel the electricity and it went into arrears and they were sending you things, I didn't have your email and you're in arrears because you were sloppy and that's a ding on your credit. But, and then this can legitimately happen, right? Like, but also keep on top of your affairs. So there's that. So anything like that, where it's been your sloppiness or you haven't paid and things have gone into arrears, you can never get them removed off your credit. The only thing that can remove them is time. However, if it's legitimate fraud, it can be removed. The first thing you probably need to do is go back to the retailer or your bank and put a thing in with them and also probably call Crime Stoppers. Get that, all that to say, if it's fraud, you need to get onto it as soon as possible. And I've got that system in my life, $15 a month. So I get notified if there is any activity on my credit file. I have seen people clean these up when they have been from sloppiness though. I have seen clients say that I didn't give the proper address to Telstra when I left my rental and I've seen Telstra remove that default because they could prove that they hadn't received it. Yeah. So the, the provider. It's an outlier. I was just going to say it's a it's very a, extreme outlier. But it's an I just outlier. want to say that would be a bonus. But if. And there's uh, also people at the credit fix, people that can try to negotiate for you to try to, if you pay it, if you haven't paid it, if you pay it and have a shorter time, there's just things that they can do mm-hmm. that I think you should still. I would push to, I wouldn't just wait the five years. I'd push and see yeah, if there's yeah. a way. Oh, absolutely. That you can get it cleaned up. I just up. need to temper this to say if but don't it's be sloppy. sloppy and. You know, if there is a legitimate ding on your credit file and and maybe it was a late bill and you paid it off, they're not going to re- no. retrospectively go back. Mm. I think what you're saying is if there is still an arrears or something that's outstanding, you might be able to settle the debt. However, I would still say good luck getting it removed. It's tough. And I just, I, I honestly wouldn't pay one of those companies myself. I would just try and pick up the phone and... Hustle, I don't know. And I would say, Dylan, the best thing you can do is face it head on. So if you've got something on your credit file, let's deal with it now, even if it's going to be a period of time. And that way when you are ready to buy, you've cleaned it up. But a lot of people do ostrich and they don't deal with it Mm. and then it just goes on for longer and longer. When it comes to the second part of that, you know, the low income and parenting payment, well, it's just about working out how much you can borrow now and maybe it's about seeing a broker to say, well, how much would I need? to earn or how much would my wife need to earn? Maybe if she went back to work one day a week, this is what you could borrow. So I think it's always worth seeing a broker to, to get the scenario out and go, well, you can earn, you can borrow this now, which might not be enough, but you know, when your wife's back at work earning this amount, you will be able to borrow this. Yeah, I think for me, Dylan, I want you to go back to the Sound Financial House. I want you to work on your foundations because you, you, know, you do want to buy a property one day, I get that. 
but let's make sure we've got our emergency fund. Let's make sure we're out of consumer debt because these things will really help while you're on a lower income with a child and a parent at home. So the foundations will really help get your bloody life insurance, pay it through your super. It's not out of your cash flow. So that's, I would just work on the financial foundations first and then go, okay, it's been two years. We've saved an emergency fund, spouses back to work. Okay. What do we want in our future to look like? All our foundations are in place. You know what? We like renting here. Let's buy an investment property. You know what? We want to live here. Let's save and buy a home to live in. So I I think I'm just like, let's strip it all back, build our foundations and then come what may. Yeah, I love that. I think, um, Dylan, you might be 27. Your average lifespan's 85. You've got 58 years to do your thing. So be patient Mm. but also take action. Well, we might leave it there. Rach from Sphere Home Loans, thanks for supporting My Millennial Money podcast. If you want to review your mortgage, get a new mortgage, I don't know, if you're lonely and you want to talk to someone, give Sphere Home Loans a call, put an inquiry in on their website, big capable team. They've got capacity and it's going to be great. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Raj. Thanks for having me. Very insightful. And John, thanks for uh, being on the show as always. Pleasure. And looking forward to your book coming out next year. Yes, turn of the year. Turn of the century. Mm. Feels like a century that I've known you. Probably coming up to that, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Mm. Gosh. Should have a party at your 40th for it. Who's the lucky boy? You or me? Uh, (laughs) Toss a coin, eh? Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a link in the show notes. We would really appreciate your support. And not only that, I wouldn't want to sell you something that I don't think you would get value from. So Mm. you go, my name's Glenn James. We'll see you soon. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 
we wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.